Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, you know how geeked up I get when we have a guest on the podcast? And we've got a guest today. I know. Um, I don't know if it's just the guests that make you geeked up, but. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Tim Augustus is joining us and we're going to bring her in in just a minute. And we're really excited to have her tell her story. Uh, Spoiler alert for me and you only, I guess. We already know her story and it's a good one. We're going to have a really positive, uplifting podcast episode today. But first, we have to take care of a little business Uh, We're going to do a listener question, but even before that, we want to encourage people to send in listener questions that are in a specific direction. We, I'm really eager to do an episode. I've been thinking about this and you've talked, you and I've talked a little bit about it to do an episode about the impact of cable news on alcoholism. And that might sound totally ridiculous. And it might sound like we want to dive into politics. We do not. Um, but the fact is we hear story after story about people who come home after work and flip on the old boob tube and start pouring drinks and treat it like a sporting event and scream and yell at the TV screen. And I, I think the influence of cable news on alcohol consumption is a big deal. And so I want to talk about it, but I only want to talk about it if, uh, listeners prove to us that it is a big deal by sending in listener questions. Yeah. So if we get a few listener questions that, that can, say, yeah, we want, we do want you to talk about the podcast. Yeah. If somebody will do like, all our some... work for us, that would be great. <laughs> Give us the material. We'll just talk about it. Yeah. But I think that we hear a lot of stories where it's a very divisive scenario. So I think that we will hear a lot of and stories. I know we have some stories from our kitchen yes. when I was drinking and watching cable news yeah. after coming home from work. So yeah, I think there's a lot of meat on that bone, but let's find out if you are a listener and you want to send a listener question about that or anything else, although that's what we really are interested in right now. Um, send it to Matt at sober and unashamed.com. And we look forward to reading those. We also want to remind everyone that we have started our new writing group for teens, teens who have lived in a house where alcohol consumption, alcohol abuse was present and it impacted them. And if you would like to check out that new program, go to thedevelopingstory.org, thedevelopingstory.org. And um, we're getting people signed up. We're having initial meetings with people, meeting some great teens. Our daughter, Catherine, is running that program. So your teen will not be subjected to a couple of 50-year-olds trying to encourage them to write. Jerry, our listener question for today. My husband is sober, and when he talks about his past drinking, he uses phrases like, I was not really that bad. He was high-functioning, but the situation was quite awful and awful for years. Is there danger or a threat or a threat to his sobriety for someone who insists that their drinking was not that bad? What do you think, Sherry? Mm. Well, I think that um, 
in the times where you had sobriety for longer periods and I was, I think that sometimes that was part of your reason for going back to drinking. You weren't happy. You didn't find things to be that bad in your own mind to justify the ability not to drink. I think when you started writing um, and you would write about some of the situations that happened and you would go back and read that stuff, you'd reread your journal to remind you to keep on that track of sobriety. Um, I think that was very helpful in having it stick this time. And I, I think that a lot of our sober, but dry drunk spouses and partners that are, you know, we've heard about those that say that do have a tendency to have relapses and then they don't grow and change and acknowledge. And then they get stuck in this relationship. That's just not very positive and hopefully sobriety brings on a whole set of feelings and emotions and you want to work and you want to have a better life. And some of our, you know, people we know, they just are stuck there. Yeah. And it, it, even if they don't, even if their partner, I don't think verbalizes all the time, Oh, it wasn't that bad. They just have that, you know, the part, they know the partner has said it enough that they understand that's their feelings, but they don't ever want to get into that discovery phase and try to elevate the relationship to even a higher level than what I think a lot of relationships are, whether alcohol is there or not, the lack of communication. And Yeah. I think that's a really insightful response. I would just add, if you think that your drinking was not that bad, you should probably get a second opinion because I feel strongly that your spouse probably thinks it was that bad. I feel strongly that the, the spouse who sent in this listener question does. And I think the point you made about writing is so important. It serves a lot of purposes. First of all, there's science behind the fact that our brains, once we get through an experience, we want to stay focused on the positive and we want to compartmentalize and shove down the negative. That's just, I don't know why, but that's how our brains work. So as a drinker or a drinker that was in a period of sobriety, it wouldn't take long before I would forget about the bad stuff. And all I could think about was a sunny summer Saturday afternoon when all my chores were done, all my work was done. And boy, wouldn't that beer taste good. That's all I could think about in early sobriety. And I would forget about the nights where we would stay up till three o'clock in the morning, arguing with each other and the nasty things that I said and just all the ramifications. And so writing it down <clears throat> is brilliant because then you've got it to go back to, but it's also a great way to get that second opinion, take that written journal entry and share it with somebody, Be, you know, even, even outside of your relationship, someone, a trusted confidant and say, is this normal? Well, I think when, when, when you do the writing, I just want to, you know, I, it's not my favorite way of processing stuff, but I do find that when I am writing something, things pop into my mind. Um, and if I'm trying to stay on topic, of what I'm writing, I still have this like clutter over here of things that are relatable, but not quite relatable, but just kind of hanging out. So it's almost like you're having, you're psychoanalyzing yourself a little bit because you're bringing up thoughts and feelings and emotions and, and um, perspectives that really make it more, you're being more honest with yourself when you're writing. Like you said, you always go deeper when you're writing, but I think it also is a good way, even if you don't put it on paper, you've kind of triggered your brain to say, Hey, remember this part of it, 
you know, and so if you're really honest with your writing, you're writing it down and it's just journaling instead of like writing to a certain prompt. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about writing to get to publish it yeah. or to, to share it with the big bad world necessarily. Although I'd like to get a second opinion right now, or I guess a third opinion right now from someone who has published her story for the big bad world. Kim Augustus, even before we introduce you and tell our audience who you are, did, did, did you experience any of this? And I, I, this is not a leading question. I do not know the answer. Mm -hmm. Did your husband ever say my drinking was not that bad as a, you know, reason to go back to drinking? Yes, he did. At the beginning, um, you know, you, I would get a lot of, well, you think it's bad. This is your problem. It's not that bad. No matter how much evidence I brought or how much I, I showed or, or I wrote down to show, it was always, it's not that bad. That's your version. Yeah. And I, and I think, and we're going to get into your story, but your, your story involves relapses. And so was that sometimes the justification the, the yeah. justification for the relapse. Yeah. Yes, Great. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. It's real. Well, let's bring you in formal like now, Kim. Uh, we are extremely excited to have our good friend, Kim Augustus. We've known you for gosh, two and a half, three years, something like that. Now I think Kim Yeah. and Kim is the founder and creator of bloom RDH, which is a platform to help newly graduated dental hygienists navigate their career options. She is also a clinical provider and a college instructor. She's married and is the mother of two. She is an advocate for alcoholism recovery, both on an individual and relationship level. And um, this is all pulled together in a recently published article she has in Dental Entrepreneur Woman magazine, Kim, thank you so much for joining us on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to see you guys, because I can see you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This will be published as radio, but we're doing it as TV, so it's great to see you as well. Um, let's just go back to the beginning. When did you and your husband meet? Was was it like Sherry and I's deal where you know, the first date involved drinking was alcohol there from the beginning. How did the, how did this whole thing start? Yes. Very similar. I met my husband in college. He was 19. I was 21. We were living the college life. It involved a lot of drinking, partying, hanging out with our friends, going out. And we just kind of embraced it together. The only difference that I will say from the beginning of our time together that I think helped me, you know, 15 to 10 years, 10 to 15 years down the road is I never liked my husband when he was drinking from the day I met him, the day I met him, he drank a lot. And I was like, Oh my God, this, the, who's this guy? Well, like what's going on? Then I met him sober, totally different person. The sober version of my husband is the person that I fell in love with. And throughout our entire marriage, I never liked what I would call drunk James. And I told him that he knew that it was a different person. And that helped me in the long run, really distinguish between my husband and the alcoholic. But, you know, I enjoyed our sober time together. I enjoyed our life through college, getting married, um, you know, eventually having kids, having established jobs. But there was always that alcohol was there. It was, there was always an issue, but 
But in my mind, I was not brought up around alcoholism. I didn't have anybody in my family that, that dealt with addiction. So I was just like, you know, he will, he'll grow out of it. This isn't going to be forever. He'll grow out of it. Isn't that what happens? But it didn't. <laughs> Did so in when you didn't enjoy being around him even early on, like you said in college, and we all know how alcohol-centric college situations can be. It, even though you didn't really like him when he was drinking, were you around him a lot when he like was it? You know, the weekends are party time, and you guys would still spend the weekends together, even if it wasn't your favorite to be around him when he was drinking. Was it kind of like forced togetherness, that kind of a thing? Absolutely. But it also became kind of controllingness too, because that's when I would start to say, well, we're going to go out. Can you only have two or how much are you going to drink? Or, you know, will you drive? Cause I knew if he would drive, he wouldn't drink a lot. So even though I didn't even really enjoy drinking here, I am trying to drink more so that he drinks less. Um, but it, it started with that, with the controlling of his drinking, which then, you know, leads to a lot of resentment on both sides. But, um, yeah, it, it always because I never knew what it would turn into after the event we were at. So we could be out with our friends, we could be drinking, having a great time, but then we could get home and it could turn into a huge fight and we could be up till three in the morning fighting. Was he a, uh, you know, I, uh, in a social setting, I, I fit in, I look like everybody else. I'm having a few, but then drink hard and heavy when he gets home, like I used to do. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I would go to bed and he would keep drinking. Um, my husband also worked in, well, he still works in sales, but you know, that was always the excuse too. Well, this is my job. I have to drink for my job. I have to take people out. I have to go drink at the bar until two in the morning because these clients are going to come and, you know, drop a big ticket with me if I keep drinking. So did you find like it was for Matt and I, also, once we had kids, then I was completely like in the kid zone and couldn't even think about going to party. And then it would be like, you know, he'd be holding the baby, drinking a beer. And I, it would just like be so shocking to me that he could do those two things at the same time. Did that yeah. sort of happen with you? It did. And I would say my flip from drinking and like the college crazy lifestyle, I went to college and I got a business degree and then we got married and all of that. I then went back to dental hygiene school. When I was back in dental hygiene school, my drinking kind of tapered off because I couldn't drink and, and focus on academics and all of that. And his kept going. And then we had kids and then he was still drinking. And I really had no desire at that point. I mean, I'm a mom, I'm working. Who has time to, to party? <laughs> yeah. 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 So so be okay. This is one of the things that I think is interesting about stories like yours and ours. Cause I think there's a lot of similarities is you, he was drinking when you met. So was there, I mean, obviously there has to eventually be a progression to cross that invisible line into addiction, but was the progression slow and hard for you to see because it had always been there. It wasn't like, you know, he was sober for 20 years of your marriage. And then all of a sudden he came over and he had a vodka bottle in his hand. Did you even know you were headed toward trouble or, or um, did you just think, gosh, I don't like to be around this guy. Maybe, maybe I've got a problem. So I started to notice that there was trouble. One, when we would get home and, and the drinking would still continue after, you know, I went to bed. That was kind of red flag. Number one, then 
it would be, I was finding nips in our garage hidden in his, you know, toolbox or hidden in random places. And I'd say, you know, what, what's with the nips? And then it would turn into, well, you know, you don't let me drink. So this is where, this is what I have to do. Or sometimes I just want to have a drink when I'm cutting the grass or you don't let, most of it was a, you don't let me drink. So when I started to find those little clues, that's when my brain really started to go into, there's something more going on. And then I noticed my husband's self-esteem really kind of tanking and kind of masking depression, I think, with drinking as well. After we had kids, that that's really when my mind started to go as to, okay, this is turning into more of a serious problem. Were you able to tie the self-esteem decline to the alcohol? That's that's usually a um, you know, it's, it's a very direct line, but it's one that people that don't have education in addiction and how alcohol works struggle to see. Were you able to connect those dots pretty quickly? Did you have to do some research to figure that out? No, I, I feel like I could connect the dots perfectly because when he was drunk is when everything would come out. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not a good person or I uh, am nothing. It's all of that. So everything that he was thinking and feeling would then come out when he would be drinking. Yeah, that makes sense. And for, I think probably most of our listeners will know, but I think nips is a, isn't that an East coast thing to call on that? Those are little, the little airplane bottles. I don't know. I, you don't know. I don't, I mean, I've heard it from other people. Yeah. I think it's just, anyway, that's what you're talking about, right? The little airplane. Yeah. yeah, Where the, sometimes people call them shooters. Yeah. They're everywhere and they litter the streets because, you know, people just toss them out the window. (laughs) People who don't drink those aren't into recycling, are they? No. They're just like Like, everywhere. Yeah. Like, cause we live, yeah. We'll see them like along the road, you know, as you're biking and you're like, oh, well. I hate them. I hate them. Even just seeing them or seeing one that looks like one just sends me like back into trauma response. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, What about work? Was the drinking impacting work for him or or for both of you? Because you're you're dealing with it on your side of the fence, too. So early on, no, because like I said, my husband, you know, was in sales. He was traveling all the time. So he was always covering the drinking with work, I think, then came a layoff. So the layoff is really when, okay, you're not you don't need this for work anymore. So why is it still happening? So that was kind of an eye opener for me is okay, so that you're still drinking, but you're not traveling and and you're not taking people out, but you're still needing to drink. And then um, as it progressed even more, it became a big problem. The pandemic, I think the pandemic did a lot of alcoholics in, but now you're at home and now you're supposed to be working. And now I'm finding you, you know, passed out in the middle of the day when you're supposed to be working. Was alcohol related to the layoff or was the layoff related to alcohol or just business? No, no, it was, yeah. Sale of of the company and loss of the position. What what about on your side? Was it impacting you at work? Um, you know, having to deal with all this and being up at night and stuff like that. It did. And it, I would say I really covered it well. And there's a lot of times where you have to go into work and you don't even know, say my husband like took off the night before, or we got in a big fight and then he left and he would be gone. And then I have to get up and I have to go to work the next morning. But not only do I have to go to work the next morning, I have to get my kids up. I have to get them to where they have to go. And then I'm at work and I still don't even know where my husband was. So it impacted my emotional 
response to being able to do my job as a dental hygienist. You are connecting with patients, you're sitting down, you are having to understand what's going on with them as, a, as I'm going through all of this in my own mind. As my husband's drinking progressed, I was in a fantastic work environment with amazing employees who knew what I was going through. And they offered a lot of support for me if they saw, you know, there were plenty of days that I walked into work and I'm crying because of something that happened the night before and they were there to pick me up. So I would say working in a small office with amazing coworkers was, you know, the place I needed to be during that time. And I was lucky to have them to, to really rely on. We hear a lot of people who talk about almost a self gaslighting in that they struggle to recognize if what they're going through is normal. If this, is this just relationship stuff? Is this just, you know, we've got stressful jobs, we've got kids, we're adults now, or is this really addiction? Is this really not okay? And I'm curious because you said sometimes your husband, you know, would, wouldn't come home and you'd be up the next day getting it going. Did you have, either the internal fortitude or did the people that you would open up to about this, did you have people saying, that's not okay, Kim, that's not normal adulting. Um, it's, it's not cool that he didn't come home. Did, like, did you have a sense that this was a big deal? I really didn't. I, at that time I confided in my sister-in-law who grew up in a family of alcoholics, my brother's wife, and she would kind of walk me through it. And really be there to emotionally support me, not so much as to what, you know, this isn't normal, or um, why are you still with your husband? Why are you going through this? But she kind of helped me also see the side of, I think he's really hurting. I think he really needs help. Let's try to figure out a way to get that going so that he can get better and he's not taking off on you and your children. Yeah. So, you're, you're a very, um, out, outgoing, you're, you know, you say what you're thinking, you don't hold back. That's the personality that we've come to know and love from you. So I've got to imagine as you're going through this, you, I mean, you got to be up in his face about this at times, right? Like, Hey, uh, you need help. Um, you, this is, this is more than just drinking because you're in a sales position and that's what salespeople do. Uh, we got to fix this. Um, did you, did you feel like you were kind of aggressively attacking the problem? Is, is that what was going on in the household? All the time. I'm a fixer, right? I want to fix it. So what, what I do is I'm, and I like to have documentation. So I keep notes. I always kept notes of what was happening. I would take my notes. I would research, you know, the best couples therapist that deals with addiction. And here I come, I'm like, okay, here we go. We're walking in and I'm, I have all my facts. And I said, here are all my facts. This person now is going to tell my husband that they're an alcoholic and they need to go get help. So I come in with all my facts and um, that's not what happened. Instead, at the end of a therapy session, the therapist would pull me aside and say, Kim, like, have you heard of Al-Anon? Like, do you know what Al-Anon is? Or do you know what support for yourself is? Because I'm so focused on Somebody else needs to tell him that there's a problem because he's not hearing it from me. From me, it's my problem. Somebody else has to be there to tell him. But then it got to the point where, you know, the marriage was deteriorating more and I, you know, would push to go back to see a couple's therapist. And then the, the parameters would be there for my husband. Okay, I'll go as long as alcohol isn't brought up. So I think he kind of was thinking that there's a problem, but he doesn't want to hear about it. So it wasn't really until things got 
pretty bad. And it was right about in the middle of the pandemic that then I said, you know, you have to do something like you can't come home anymore. I involved some of our very close friends that my husband's close friends, he's been sober for about 20 years. And that's really when they helped me enforce like what I would call an intervention, basically, as to you, because we tried, um, you know, he did the night IOP intensive outpatient therapy, um, was still drinking during that, because there was always the well, I can't leave work, I can't, I can't step away from my job. I, nobody can know what's going on. Um, I can't take time away from work. So we tried the night IOP. That didn't work. Then he tried the day IOP where you would go to the program. I think it was like eight to three. You'd come home. And, you know, then I saw him one day opening up his trunk. He didn't know I saw it and putting in a handle of vodka. So that wasn't working. So now what are we going to do now? That's really when the rock bottom hit yeah. and it got pretty bad. So I, you just covered a ton of ground in this last little uh, I did. bit that you shared. <laughs> and I want to go back to mm. the, the that first meeting with the um, relationship counselor, because you said, and, and the reason I think this is so important is because I think we'll have a lot of listeners that are really going to relate to this. You had your notebook, you're documented, you have it all ironed out. You you all you're looking for is validation. The case. Yeah. And the judgment to be you're an alcoholic. Yeah. Drunk mm -hmm. James. You know, you don't need them. You don't need that counselor to tell you. You need that counselor to tell him. You need support. You need someone to. So besides pulling you aside and telling you about Al-Anon, did the counselor confront him at all? No. no. I mean, there was Ugh. like some questions brought up about and my husband had answers for all of them. Oh, it's not mm -hmm. a problem. You know, none of my friends, all my friends do this or nobody else's wife has a problem with that. And those were all his. That, this is sometimes where we hear the horror story that the uh, therapist tells you, if you just give him more sex, then uh, he won't have to drink yeah. so much. And it's yeah. it's all on you. So at, at least at least that didn't happen. And and I want to be careful here. There are wonderful counselors, wonderful therapists out there. Um, so there are there are good stories as well. But, you know, one of the things that we've learned, not just from our own experience, but from other people is marriage counseling when alcohol is, when alcohol abuse is still taking place is kind of a huge waste of money. Like you need to go and get individual recovery and get, you know, sober is a prerequisite. You need to get sober and then get individual counseling first before you waste the money on the couple's counseling. How would you react to that statement I just made? It's a hundred percent accurate. It's a waste of money. There is nothing that you can work on when you're not dealing with the main problem first. And a lot of times it is you work on yourself and the alcoholic works on themselves and then you work together slowly. Did, did the fact that right from the get you called him drunk James and said you didn't, didn't like drunk James, did that work against you in a way? I'm wondering if he would say, Oh, you've just, you just never liked me even back at the beginning when I drank. This is your problem, Kim. Oh, all the time. That was his go-to. If, if I think this was a, a, a line I heard all the time. If you just let me be me, then there wouldn't be a problem. Meaning if you just let me drink whenever I want, this wouldn't be a problem. But because you have a problem with it, you know, I have to go hide in the garage or I have to hide nips in the nightstand or whatnot. So 
talk about the turning point for him, not turning point to lasting sobriety, but the turning point to acknowledging, because this is huge, right? For us alcoholics, way usually way 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 before we find sobriety we have we find a point where we acknowledge okay okay you're not just an aggie wife there is actually a problem here for most of us it's an and right not an or um you are still an aggie wife but there's also a problem here and i can <laughs> i can own that and like i said that's often for me it was 10 years before permanent sobriety when i first acknowledged acknowledged it but you as you were talking you talked about an iop an evening iop a daytime iop you talked about an intervention at what point along the lines did this just go from this is your fault because you won't let me drink whenever i want to to okay kim you're right there's a problem here i wish i could remember exactly when that happened but there was a time a point where he would say to me okay i'll stop like i'll stop drinking and then we'd have like a two week span. I think two weeks was like the magic number. And then it would revert back or then it would revert back or I'd find something hidden. And then this, then you become the enforcer and it's like, have you been drinking? Like, let me smell your breath or let me look at me. And that was all during that time too. And that's really hard on us as a spouse because you don't want to be the enforcer. You don't want to be the one that's, you know, trying to be the detective or I should say. Um, but I would say it started a turning point. I think it was about close to three years ago when he really started to acknowledge, okay, there's a problem. And I, his parents were then getting involved at the time, I didn't really tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell a lot of our friends at the beginning because I didn't want them to have a negative opinion of him. If you don't understand addiction, if that makes sense, maybe, I don't know. That was what was going on in my mind. And I said, if I tell his parents, they're going to love him no matter what. That's his son. We're very close with his, we're a very close family. Um, so I kind of dragged them through the trenches with me. And in hindsight, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but they were there for me whenever I needed them. And they were always on my side. That's his parents were always on your side. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That, mm -hmm. that is, um, I, that's a real blessing. I think often because you said they're going to love him no matter what, often our parents want to love us so much and don't want to believe this bad thing about their own offspring. And so uh, like it was, it was doable for me to manipulate and twist my parents into believing that I just had a crazy wife and it really wasn't as bad as what they thought. So I think that's great that you had support all along. Were his parents drinkers and were your parents drinkers or are they? Neither, or Neither, Neither. side. Okay. I mean, they might, my parents might have like a drink on a holiday, same with his parents or like a really hot day. They might have a beer. Um, but on my husband's side, on his, both his, um, dad and mother, they each have siblings. My husband's wife, uh, husband's mom's brother died of, of alcoholism. So it's, oh, wow. it's in on his side, but not his direct parents. But enough so that they had been exposed to, to ex it. Yeah, exposed so, well, it to impacted it. big time, right? I mean, her, you said her brother died? Her brother, yes. yes. Yeah. So the alarm bells probably went off for them pretty loudly when so how did they get involved? Did you bring them into it? Did you ask for help? 
Yes, I brought them into it. And if there was something like really bad going on or my husband was really drunk and I would have them come over and they would help me or they would try to get them out of the house. So they saw what I saw for sure. Yeah. So the the two week cycle was pretty typical for a while. The two week relapse cycle. The two. Yes. Yep. It was like two weeks was the magic number. And then you just like, wait, you wait, you know, it was coming. You didn't want it to come and you were hopeful that it wouldn't, but it always did. Were they able to get her, his parents, were they uh, influential? Were they able to get through to him like in a different way than you were? Uh, Did it create shame for him to know that his parents knew what was going on? Talk a little bit about that, if you would. They would try to get through to him. I don't really think they did. Or he would please them and just say, yeah, 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 kind of thing. But then it got to the point, too, where he said, you you've taken everything from me, including my parents. So I think Mm. it became a resentful thing that I had everybody on my side and and not his when it wasn't that way at all. We all just love to get better. Um, And I think now he would see that. Um, But he would hate if I would call or tell them what was happening, because our business should be our business and not somebody else's business. Yeah, boy, sounds like he and I had the same playbook to read from. It's so interesting because you've pulled everybody to your side working against him when really what you've done is you've pulled everyone to his side and he just can't see it yet. Yeah, right. I mean, that's certainly what was going on with us. I mean, Sherry reached out for help. You reached out for help. It wasn't to shame me. It wasn't to make me feel bad. It was to save me. And I see that now, but I didn't see that back then. Um, okay. All right. I am so excited about this. I want you to tell the real estate agent story because I love that story. (laughs) Matt uses that so often. I do. (laughs) So this is kind of, I was, I think we were, I don't even know what relapse we were in at the time. I think this was after the first day of inpatient rehab and we were dealing with relapses and I'm just a person where sometimes I'm done and I'm done with it all, even though I really didn't want to be done. But so I said, that's it. We're selling the house. I'm getting out of here. So I have a real estate agent come over and assess how much our house would be worth without telling my husband. And he was, um, you know, coming to bring me all the paperwork of he made this nice binder of how much our house would be worth with all the pictures and all that stuff. And I happened to be at a neighbor's house and my husband was out getting the mail and as the real estate agent drove by, he's like, oh, here, I have your appraisal for your home. Just let me know when you're ready for it to go on the market. And my husband had no idea. <laughs> that is so great. <laughs> Even though I've heard it so many times, I love that story so much. <laughs> but talk about it. I don't know. Out getting the bail and then here it's like this binder. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Oh, yeah, so then the real estate agent messaged me too, and he said, uh, so I just gave the information to James, but he looked kind of shocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, you want, if you want to question whether you talk about detachment, you know, the key to detachment is that you have to mean it. You can't read about detachment in a book. You can't listen to it on a podcast and then just implement these steps of uh, detaching from your alcoholic loved one. You want to talk about effective detachment, get a real estate assessment and have it delivered to your husband to let him know you're not messing around. I just love that. Are you still in that house? We are. And I will never leave my house. I love my house. 
<laughs> that's great that's yeah. great what about but I think too oh, it's just I was gonna say is I'm not by nature a people pleaser I'm more of a I'm gonna do what I want kind of person and I think that that has helped me in the long run too because if you're a people pleaser and you're going through this it, it really makes it harder yeah oh the people pleaser yeah uh, we could we could do a whole yeah. other hour on that for sure so I wanted to um, asked this question when you were talking about going to the marriage counselor and they said, you know, Kim, have you thought about anything like Al-Anon or getting help for yourself? Did that at that point trigger you to start looking into stuff for yourself or did it take a little while to get there? It did. And I had a um, very close friend who actually was just going through a divorce because her husband was an alcoholic and she never did any work on herself. And I, her divorce had been finalized and I said, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to go to Al-Anon and she came with me and we did go to a meeting and that's kind of when my eyes were first open to how many people are walking this walk or have walked this walk. Um, but I wasn't really getting what I needed out of Al-Anon. Um, I was hearing what people had to say, but I wasn't developing the connections that I think I needed through there. So I didn't continue it long-term. It was when my husband was in inpatient rehab the first time that I got on Amazon and I ordered all kinds of books, one which happened to be your book. And when I read your story, it really was so similar to what I was going through that that's when I found, I you know, Googled you, both of you, and saw that you had your support group that you offered. And that's really when I started to develop the, the connections that I think I needed when I started to, when I joined your group. Yeah, that's great. And gosh, we have loved knowing you this whole time, not just for the real estate agent story. You've got lots of other stuff <laughs> to offer as well. So you mentioned, I think we kind of, we talked about IOP evening and day didn't work. You just mentioned impatient for the first time how many, like talk to, talk us through inpatient relapsed inpatient. Like how did that all go? Mm -hmm. So the first time my husband went to inpatient rehab, it's like you take that breath and you're like, this is it. And we did it because yeah. I remember listening to, I, I want to say maybe her name was Jessica, but you had a podcast with this individual. I remember listening to it in the grocery store and crying when she said, if anyone says, that their loved one is in rehab, know that they've been through hell and back or something similar to that. And I just related to that so much because to get someone to that point of surrendering themselves, really, because they're the ones that have to eventually make that decision, it is hell. And you you're, don't realize how much stress you're holding on to until they're somewhere and you can take that breath and breathe. And I'm like, this is it. We did it. We're doing it. Um, he spent 30 days in inpatient rehab. Um, I do remember one of our first, you know, video calls that we got to do with each other. Um, I could see that he was, you know, starting to do the work and, and realizing the problem. And he came home and throughout the course of that next year, I think there was 11 relapses. Yeah. Um, and we had an amazing family therapist at that time from the rehab that agreed to meet with us throughout the whole time that my husband was home. Um, 
And he said the average person will relapse 11 times before finding a prolonged period of sobriety. And we hit every single one of them. <laughs> mm. That's so, yeah, that's fascinating. I, you know, when you talk about crying in the grocery store because of that statement, it, it makes me think about how complex this problem is. Part of the problem is that we don't talk about it enough. And so that's why this conversation is so important. That's why some of your other, your writing that you just published, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about activism in, in a minute. But so talking about it is so important, but it's like one of these big problems, like the, the big ones that you hear us talk about on the news, like not us talk about, but people talk about on the news, like homelessness, like what do we do with immigration? How do we fix the economy? If it was easy, we would have solved it by now. If addiction was mm -hmm. easy, if there was one magic bullet here, here's how you fix it, it would be solved. You know, early on in, in this uh, recovery work, I was very critical of AA because they had such a low success rate. Now I look at it totally differently. I don't think AA is doing anything wrong. They're just meeting the needs of a small percentage of the population. And then, you know, smart recovery meets the needs of another small percentage of the population. And Laura McCowan's work with the, the Luckiest Club, they, they aren't a fit for everybody. They're a fit for a small percentage. And as long as they're, you know, and the stuff that we do in Shout Sobriety, as long as there are a bunch of different options and they all meet some people's needs, then it's just math. It'll add up and we'll have a solution for everybody. But the idea that it's one size fits all or that, oh, this rehab is great. This is the one that fixed, you know, my problems. So it's going to work for everybody. It's just not true. There's just, there's got to be a million different resources and a million different avenues to go down. Um, and then, and you got to find the right mix. And so if anyone is listening to this and thinking, but I've done all this, my husband did rehab or, or I I'm the drinker and I, I did the IOPs and I tried and it didn't work for me. You know, I think the, my message would be just keep trying, keep looking, keep finding. And yours is a story of such resilience, Kim, because you know, he didn't give up. You didn't give up. It was not easy. It wasn't quick. Um, I mean, when we knew you, I'll be honest. I wasn't sure he was going to make it the, when you would talk to us and the fact that we're sitting here, he's at uh, one year and what'd you say? Seven months of sobriety at this seven point. Months. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, two years ago, I would have been shocked to hear that. So mm -hmm. um, it really, what, what's your take on this idea of it's not one size fits all and you just got to keep going. It's not a one size fits all. And I think that's kind of, I think by nature, I'm a little bit of a controlling person. So when my husband got home, it's like, you know, well, why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing that? And, and why aren't you going to this? Or why haven't you done that? Or why don't you have a sponsor? Or why aren't you doing this? And he would have to say is, I have to recover my way. Um, or I'm not going to be successful. It's not your way. It has to be my way. Um, although that first way didn't work and he relapsed 11 times. Um, I think he had to try it his way to realize that it didn't work um, because after those 11 relapses, there was um, like a week long of intense drinking and just crashing down to the ground, burning down, I would say, um, that then he went to a different rehab again and he lived away for three months in sober living um, and intended this program that he finally found 
what he needed to recover in that program. And that's truly when the work started. The first, you know, inpatient, I think was like, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to check the box. I'm going to, you know, I'm fine. I don't really have a problem. This is, it's, it's fine. Then after that next year and those three months in um, sober living is really when the work set in. And I think you've just highlighted another really important point. He found the program that was the right fit, but the timing was also right too. It's almost like he had to have these other failures. It wasn't necessarily that those programs were bad. Perhaps the sober living that he eventually found that was the solution. If he had done that right away early on before all those relapses, that wouldn't have worked either. Right. So it's, it's not just the thing, it's the timing, right? Absolutely. I think if he had done that the first time, it wouldn't have worked. I think the roommate that he had at the time is the person that he needed um, to recover together. And they were very close and um, really helped each other and that he wouldn't have had that person if he had done that the first time. Yeah, the connection piece is just so important. What I don't want to say, it seems like an arrogance, but I there are a lot of people that have to try it their way, try it their way, mm-hmm. try it their way. And it is because they have to find that, you know, there's a feeling inside that it's going to work and it's going to happen. So, but it's like they exhaust every Avenue and that's kind of how like Amber from put the shovel down. I said, when she works with alcoholics, she lets them try because now you're out of options. You've tried this, 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 and this, mm-hmm. and this. So now that's the next step. The, and in your case, it was the three months sober living. So it's kind of like they just need to exhaust all avenues and try the thing that just connects, but it's also like, so that timing. Right. And I remember both of us after the, that long week of, of drinking and, you know, kicking him out of the house again. I think this is a story you'll like too, is like, he's laying in, in the bed and I'm like, you have to get out and I'm ripping all the sheets off and I'm taking the blankets and I'm throwing them out of the bed. And I'm like, you're out. You're either in a hotel or you're back to rehab, but you're getting out. Um, I remember it vividly. Like I got my kids on the bus and came home and I'm like, this is it. You choose like hotel or rehab. And he chose hotel. This was the second time he chose a hotel, but the next day he called and, you know, got himself set up to, I said, here's the number, here's the place. If you're ready, they're expecting you to call. He has to make all those calls on his own. And I remember after that, and he went down and met them and, you know, came home to pack all his stuff. And the two of us are standing in the kitchen and he's crying and he says like, I have to do this. And I said, I know. And that's when it worked. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Such emotional stuff to have to live through. I mean, nobody should have to live through this, but uh, we're so glad that you're here to talk about it and help other people realize they're not alone. Um, I'm sure that this is an equally emotional subject, but can you talk about what the impact was on your kids? Yeah. So my kids were um, like rehab stay number one. They were three and five, I think. And then they were four and six. My daughter was really okay with it. My son is really the one who struggled. He's the older um, and he's my more emotional, but we were very honest with them. We didn't hide anything. Um, you know, daddy is sick. It's not something you can see. It's in his brain and he has to get better. And in order for him to get better, he can't live here right now. Um, my husband was able to, when he was in sober living, he could come home on the weekends and spend time with us. Um, so it just, 
it was hard, but it became their normal. I think that the fact that they could still see him when he was in the first inpatient stay, it was a, you know, no phone call, no, no cell phone, only, you know, scheduled calls. That was much harder. The second time um, was much better because we had more contact with him, but it was hard on their little emotional bodies to, um, to try to grapple with, well, why isn't he here? And the thing I just stressed the most is, you know, mommy and daddy both love you so much that we have to go through this so that we can all be a family together again. Over a year and a half in sobriety now, and your kids are young. What a blessing. That's great. Um, do you feel like the relationship that James has with his, with the kids is good and solid and, and they've, you know, move the kids have moved on and they're in a good place. Yes. It's a great family relationship. They have, he has a great relationship with our children. The thing that they still talk about is so he works now three nights a week at the recovery center that he went to. Um, so he works all day and then he does three nights there. So they'll still say, you know, why does daddy have to go to his meetings or why does he have to work at night? Um, and we just say, you know, we don't want daddy to have to not live here again. So he has to do this and he has to help other people that are going through the same thing that he did. My son is now nine and we've started to talk about, you know, what drinking is and what drinking too much is um, so that they know what um, I'm not trying to hide or sugarcoat anything. This, what we went through was real and, and this is how we prevent it hopefully from happening again. That's an incredibly important point. And the honesty that you're having with your kids is great that he's not just doing this to give back. He's doing this because this is part of his continual healing. I mean, that's how I feel. I, I feel like, you know, I'm a very selfish person. I continue to be even in long-term recovery. I don't do this so I can help other people. I do this because it keeps me grounded and it keeps me positive and it keeps me moving forward. And it sounds like that's the perspective that you and your husband have taken as well. Yes. And it's hard because, you know, I'm still, and this was a, another thing, you know, they don't come home and it's all roses and sunshine and rainbows when they come home from living three months at, at sober living as they come home and they're still immersed in what they were doing. So we also had to process all of that emotions is okay. Now you're home. I've been doing everything or what felt like everything for three months. Now you're home and you're still gone every single night of the week there was a lot of new normal that we both had to get get through because I was starting to feel the, you don't appreciate what I've done. You don't appreciate anything that I've gone through because I've also gone through hell and back just like you have. So there was a lot of, of us discovering our new normal and our new relationship moving forward as to how we were going to mend and become a family again while he's still is able to continue his work that he needs to do. So did he come around to being supportive, not only of like your participation in echoes of recovery, but also to the, the load that you had carried on the home front on the home front. I know in early sobriety, I was too selfish to see any of that. And now long-term I, Oh yeah. I mean, I see what a burden that I placed on Sherry. And I also see how important her recovery work is not only for her, but if this marriage is going to be a fun place to be, uh, it's really important for her to be doing recovery work as well. Does, does your husband see that? Now he does. Yes. At the time it was harder. And he would say, you know, 
I've, I've told you how much I've appreciated you because I think when I would get really overwhelmed and upset, you know, I'd almost kind of throw it back in his face. Sure. And that was something that I needed to work through and, and get over that, that feeling of resentment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just another example in your story of how this is messy. This is not, there's no, there's no rule book or, you know, no direct path to recovery. It's messy. It's emotional. It's, it's even emotional when it's going the right direction, even when both parties are making progress, it still hurts like hell sometimes. And that's just how it is. That's just how it is. Tell us about the article that you shared with us a couple of weeks ago that you wrote. How did that come to be? Um, Yeah, just tell us about it, please. So I've been wanting to share my story and share it so that others don't have to feel alone like I did or know that you're not the only one that's gone through this or going is going through this. So I'm part of this amazing group called um, Dental Entrepreneurial Women's Group. And they were looking for people to write articles about doing hard things and, and how you overcome hard things. And I offered and I said what my story would be. And they said, absolutely, we would love to share that. So I did. So I wrote the article. It was recently published. I've had you know people reach out to me and say how much they've enjoyed it. Um, my husband also took the article to one of the groups that he was leading this week and he read it and and they did a whole topic on you know, how much addiction affects families. And so, yeah, that's, that's great. You were, as you have been here, you were really honest in that article was as you were writing it, was there, were there a bunch of decision points? Do I, do I go there? Am I, do I tell the truth or do I sugarcoat it? Was it hard to decide how revealing and open and vulnerable to be? It was. And I think, you know, it is almost, it's open and honest, but it is still the sugar-coated version. I mean, it was, you know, I left it out the real ugly parts or the parts that only those who have walked the walk know what they look like. <laughs> yeah. You know, you we have heard you for some time now talk about as you've gotten healthier and felt healthier, you've also felt a desire, almost a calling to give back, to, to share your story because you know, and, and, and this is very common. This is certainly what has happened for Sherry and I, this is such harder knowledge that you gain through the process of experiencing active addiction and recovery. You learn all this stuff and you think, gosh, what a waste. If I just keep this to myself, why would I let other people who are suffering not know what I know? So talk about how that uh, like, like what's the future hold for you? How, what are you going to do with this desire to share what you know? So I did um, help start a family's recovery group at a local um, recovery center that's just in the next town over. So we meet um, every other Tuesday night for families to come. It's mostly parents. Um, I'm holding out for some spouses to come too, but it's just good to connect with others. I, 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 my, I am, I fuel on connection. I love connection. I love connecting with people on anything. And that's what got me through. And if I can help get somebody else through, then that just makes me, you know, feel like I'm, I'm leading my purpose. Does it help you not only to, to, to help others, but I mean, 
I say this all the time, but I talk about that quote from Tommy boy where big Tom says you're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction. Does it help you feel like you're still making progress to be sharing your story? So not just, yeah. not just sharing what you know, because other people need to know it, but does it help you personally? Ab- absolutely. Because even hearing, you know, somebody else share, I love to listen to everybody share their story, whether it's the addiction side or the family side, because I always get something out of somebody else sharing as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, have you seen Tommy boy? Like back in the day. Yeah. You need to watch it again. I love that movie. <laughs> Somebody's going to say right in listener question. Have you ever watched any other, <laughs> any other movie? <laughs> no, that's where I get all, you know, there's that book. I learned everything I needed to know in kindergarten. Yeah. I learned everything I need to know from Tommy boy. Uh, good stuff. Kim, so I'm not trying to put you on the spot and we can edit this out if it doesn't go well, but is there anything we haven't covered that you want to share? Anything that people need to hear? I would say one thing that I do get asked, I think, um, you know, I've had a a few people reach out and say, you know, why did you stay? What made Mm. you stay? And that's an interesting question to get because my rock bottom might not be the same as somebody else's rock bottom that, that they decide is time to leave. Um, for me, I was close, but I wasn't there. I truly believed my husband wanted to recover. I truly believed that he did not want to be an alcoholic. And I held on hope to that he would come back and that our relationship would be what it was. He's my best friend. He's the husband to my children. We have a great time together. So that really is what propelled me to keep fighting the fight that I fought for longer than I ever wanted to. And I never want to fight again. <laughs> uh, just another excellent example of how this is not one size fits all. It's a very individual, personal decision that has to be made. And I can assure you, we are not editing that out. You, We, we threw that open-ended <laughs> question at you at the end and you delivered, Kim. That was great. <laughs> and you don't edit. And I don't edit anyway. (laughs) True. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for, it's so great to reconnect with you and see your face. And um, we're just so glad that you shared the article and we just can't wait to see where, where you go next with uh, sharing your story and, and helping people find the recovery that we all deserve. Thanks for being here, Kim. Thank you. And thank you for writing your book because it really helped me and I'm sure it helps a lot of people out there. So thank you. And thank you both for everything. Oh, that was nice. We love you, Kim. Thanks. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.